0: Okay, welcome everybody, all of those watching um, remotely. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Sven Dieters from the German Cancer Research Center here today. Sven and I are very good friends and we went to college together a long time ago. And then when I did my PhD in Boston, Sven also did his postdoctoral work in Boston with Dr. Daniel Haber at MGH. After doing his postdoc, he went back to um, Germany to start his own independent lab as a group leader at the Germ- Can- German Cancer Research Centre um, called RNA Biology and Cancer. And at the beginning of this year, Sven was um, tenured and became the head of the permanent division RNA Biology and Cancer. And starting in 2016, he will also be a professor um, at the University of Freiburg. Sven has um, received many um, awards and authored many um, publications on his work on long-coding RNAs, long-non-coding RNAs, and he's going to share some of this work today here with us.
1: Yeah, thank you for the kind introduction. I hope you can all hear me. And thank you especially for the invitation and the chance to present some of our work here today. I'm obliged to show you this slide first, which is a disclosure statement. Yes, I'm going to share some data with you. That also relates to a company that I'm heavily invested in, or that I co-founded, that's as I called it, iTools Biotech uh, GmbH. The slides have been previously reviewed, and all the other information that you can see on this slide here. So with this, I would like to get into the real science of it. I would like to start with a brief introduction into long non-coding RNAs and cancer to give you basically an idea of what long non-coding RNAs are, what they might be doing. Then I will show you one example of a long non-coding RNA where we have a pretty good idea of what it's doing. That's called malat one And then in the last two parts, I'm going to tell you how we discover novel long non-coding RNAs and how we can screen them in a higher throughput to identify their cellular and molecular functions. So you are all aware of the central dogma of molecular biology, which states that DNA makes RNA makes proteins. And this has been standing for decades now. And the proteins have been viewed as the workhorses, as the molecular machines that basically do all the important parts um, in the the cell. However, over the last decade or so, it has become apparent um, that there is a recent addition to this. And these are the so-called functional non-protein coding RNAs. And that these might be important, you can already see if you have a quantitative view at the, at the human genome.
0: Because out of the about
1: 3 billion base pairs that we are having, less than 2%, actually only about 1.2, uh, 1.7% of these information is needed to make all the proteins that any given cell in the human body can produce. However, at least 70, if not 90%, of the human genome are transcribed into RNA. So you can either argue that despite millions of years of evolution, the cell still wastes a lot of energy on producing all of these transcripts and regulating and on conserving all of these transcripts. Or that's, of course, our hypothesis. There should be functionally important molecules within the sea of transcripts that make it work for the cell to produce all of those non-coding transcripts. <laughs> so what are these non-coding RNAs? Um, there are, of course, non-coding RNAs that have been around for quite a long time that are a little related to protein biosynthesis, like the ribosomal RNA or the transfer RNA. There are non-coding parts of uh, protein coding genes, like the so-called 5' or 3' untranslated regions, as well as the intronic sequences. Then there are, of course, antisense transcripts. About 50% of all mammalian genes seem to have antisense transcription. So this is not something rare. This is more the uh, general rule that you have antisense transcription. Then there are short non-coding RNAs, the microRNAs, or the PV-interacting RNAs, the piRNAs that you might have heard of. And then there is the group I want to spend most of the time with today that are the so-called long non-coding RNAs. And this is a very heterogeneous group of genes that basically only have in common that they are longer than 200 nucleotides and have a relatively low probability of being translated. But um, other than that, they can occur in the nucleus, they can occur in the cytoplasm, they can interact with many different... Um, molecules in the cells, so they're a very heterogeneous group. At the moment, estimates go, range from about 10,000 to 500,000 different long non-coding <coughs> RNAs that you can find in the human genome. Why do we study non-coding RNAs in cancer? Well, you're all aware that cancer, in many cases, is a disease of the genome. Um, so we should also look at all the genomic changes that we can find in the genome And we are in the very privileged situation to live in an era where, for the first time, genomic and transcriptomic information is really readily available for a large number of patients. Um, If you think about it, the first human genome project took about 11 years and $3 billion. Nowadays, at least in Heidelberg, uh, we run genomes in about three days for less than $1,000. So you have this kind of information available. But if you sequence entire genomes, I think you can immediately see that it wouldn't make sense to all to sequence the blue circle and then only look at the, the yellow circle, basically the protein coding genes, that you would be probably missing quite a lot of information in this case. And indeed you do so because there are first evidences, and I want to share some of these with you, that indeed long non-coding eyes can do something meaningful in a cancer cell. So we have recently reviewed all the so-called hallmarks of cancer, so the properties that a cancer cell needs to acquire or a normal cell needs to acquire in order to become a cancer cell. And basically already today, you can find a long-known coding RNA for each of those hallmarks of cancer that controls or regulates um, these respective phenotypes. At the molecular level, what's known about long-known coding RNA is so far, I think you can group that very nicely according to the interaction partners that these might have. So on the one hand side, RNA can form triplexes or um, R-loops together with DNA and lead to transcriptional interference or induce chromatin remodeling changes. So if you're interested in epigenetic mechanisms, it's now relatively well established that most of those um, complexes that modify histones um, are recruited to the DNA via along non-coding RNA component. The second group, of course, are RNAs, because RNAs, via a complementary base pairing, can, of course, interact with other RNAs and then affect alternative splicing by shielding or masking a splice site if you want so, or, of course, they can also generate endogenous SIRNAs. The probably most important group is the interaction between RNAs and proteins. This is also what I will spend most of the time today with, um, where you can basically see that. Um, RNAs can modulate the activity of a protein, they can alter protein localization, or they can have a structural and organizational role. And last but not least, of course, a long non-coding RNA can also always serve as a precursor for a short RNA. So after this introduction, I would like to move into one example. That's a long non-coding RNA called MALAT1, uh, which is a conserved long non-coding RNA, which I discovered during my PhD thesis quite a long time ago. Long means in this case more than 8,000 nucleotides in the mature transcript. However, the longest open reading frame that could, transla- uh, could be translated into a protein is, less than, uh, is just 53 amino acids. So this is less than you would expect just by chance in such a long sequence. In addition, if you do in vitro translation essays, you do not get any product, and no, in all the mass spec databases of the world, there's no transcripts, uh, there's no peptides annotated for MALAT1 that are. That that would be found. So, we are relatively certain that this is a non coding (coughs) RNA. What makes it interesting is its high conservation because this is something that you find in very few of those long non coding RNAs. Many of them are (coughs) primate specific. You do not find them beyond primates. Some of you will find them in mice, but beyond mammals, you find hardly anything. But MALAT1 you can find down to zebrafish. So, it's very highly conserved, which often um, is associated with an important function. How did we discover MALAT1? MALAT1 stands for metastasis associated in lung adenocarcinoma transcript, And this is exactly what we did. So this was good old biochemistry. We did a subjective hybridization before microarrays and RNA-seq were available um, to find novel genes that might be associated with metastasis or could lead to the prediction of metastasis in early stages of lung adenocarcinoma. Why is that? Why we were looking for markers is that in many cases, this um, disease can be cured by surgery. You can completely infect <coughs> the tumor. However, a fraction of these patients will show up three, four, five years later with distant metastasis, although the primary tumor had been completely removed. So we wanted to find out whether there's any property of the primary tumor that you could um, find out and that you could use as a marker to predict which patients go home after surgery and are cured and which patients basically should, would benefit from additional systemic <coughs> therapy. <laughs> malat one was the marker that was most strongly associated with it. So basically, you find high expression of malat one in those patients that do metastasize after a complete resection of the tumor versus those patients that did not metastasize. And that, of course, also, as you can see in the Kaplan-Meier plot, has a significant impact on overall patient survival. <laughs> after we published it, it was the first long-known coding ion that made it onto the Affymetrix microarray, so the gene expression screening platform. And basically, from there, every month, there was a new paper coming out, finding a deregulation of MALAT1 in all kinds of different systems. My personal favorite paper is this one here, because if you shoot uh, HeLa cells into space, the gene that goes up also most strongly is MALAT1. So definitely you find deregulation of MALAT1 in very many instances. However, that, of course, didn't tell us what's actually the function of MALAT1. So when I started my own lab in Heidelberg, um, we wanted to find out whether myelot-1 is just a marker that's deregulated or whether it might be an active factor that uh, could have any role in lung cancer metastasis. And what you would often do is then to create a loss-of-function model. And nowadays, or at that time, standard, of course, was to use RNA interference, for example. However, that's a little more difficult for long non coding eyes than for protein coding genes for a number of reasons that are listed here. Some of them are in, uh, in the nucleus, where siRNAs usually do not work as well. Some of them have a very strong secondary structure, which is also uh, could could prevent binding of the siRNA, and some of them are just very highly abundant, so that even if you knock down 80% of these genes, you still have thousands of molecules per cell. So at this time, the first nuclease-based technologies came to market, which were zinc finger nucleases at the time before TALENs and CRISPRs were available. However, also this is a little more difficult for non-coding RNAs because most people use the zinc finger nucleases just to create um, a frameshift small deletion in the protein coding genes. And obviously, that does not work for long non-coding RNAs. So usually, when I present this slide, everyone thinks that I'm vastly exaggerating with all these challenges that we, that we were facing. But I can tell you from our own painful experience that there is at least one gene that has every single problem that you see on this slide, and this is my one. It's nuclear, here, um, as I think I show on the next slide. It's very highly abundant, so if you compare expression of MALAT1 to well known housekeeping genes like beta actin, RPLP0, GAPDH, MALAT1 easily eats them all. MALAT1 usually is expressed at about 10,000 uh, copies per cell. So that, even if you get 80% knockdown, you still have 2,000 molecules per cell left. So that was why we decided to come up with a new way how to sh- shut down quantitatively these long non coding RNAs. And we were using Thing in place at the time, nowadays, of course, we use CRISPRs to um, open the genome specifically between the MALAT1 promoter and the MALAT1 gene, and then to introduce a stop code codon, an RNA st- destabilizing element, if you want, so a stop sign between the promoter and the MALAT1 gene that then should give rise to turning off the MALAT1 gene quantitatively. And of course, the critical question in this was which is the RNA destabilizing element that you would like to use, um, and this. You can come up with all kinds of different ideas, microRNA binding sites, <laughs> and elements, or um, self cleaving ribozymes, which are all good ideas, but they all do not work better than siRNAs. What works really well is an RNA's peak cleavage site, uh, which we have tested, but what works best is just a poly A signal. It might come as a surprise to some of you, because you're trying to think about poly-A signals as stabilizing something, because they usually demarcate the 3 prime end of a transcript, stabilizing it and protecting it from exonucleolytic cleavage. However, if you think about it, it demarcates the end of the transcript, meaning it also destabilizes everything downstream <laughs> of it. And that's exactly the property that we are exploiting in our experiment. So we have created stable cell lines to create a, a, a <coughs> quantitative loss of function model. And we got already in the first round homozygous um, integration of our, of our construct, which in turn led to an about 1,000-fold silencing of MALAT1 well, like compared to about 5-fold silencing that we could achieve using traditional siRNA. So now we finally, even for this very abundant nuclear RNA, had a <coughs> loss of function model at hand so that we could actually study it function. Um, Of course, since we found it as a marker associated with metastasis, the first thing that we looked at was migration. So as you can see here in these so-called scratch essays, where you just leave some space here in the middle, here you have cells on either side, and then you can just look over 48 hours whether these cells migrate here into the middle. And as you can see here, the the parental A549 lung cancer cells, they close this gap very nicely, while the same cell line, um, just depleted of MALAT1, has significantly uh, slower migration. With this, we went into a mouse model um, where we recapitulate um, the second half of the metastatic cascade, basically. So we inject cells into the tail so that they are in the bloodstream. That They still have to make it out of the bloodstream into a distant organ and form a new tumor nodule there. And indeed, you see the same thing. If you have the A549 cells, these are very aggressive. Here you see uh, the lung of a mouse. And you see that all these white dots here are tumor nodules that have been formed. Uh, and you see that in the... Same, if you inject the same cancer cell, just lacking MALAT1, you see that you have very few and very small of those tumor nodules, which is kind of a metastasis model, if you want so. So that was the first evidence that MALAT1, although it's a long non-coding RNA not making any protein, is not only a marker, but it's actually an active and potentially essential factor for lung cancer metastasis. And as that, of course, we asked ourselves whether we could also use it as a therapeutic target. So we teamed up with Isis Pharmaceuticals, a US-based company, who developed an inhibitor uh, for one mm-hmm. and tested this now in a model system that recapitulates the entire metastatic cascade. So in this case, we are not injecting into the tail vein, but we are growing a tumor in the mouse subcutaneously, um, which is um, then the mouse is treated with the one inhibitor. The primary tumor is removed so that the mouse does not suffer or die from the primary tumor. And then 12 weeks later, we look at the formation of tumor nodules at a distant organ. So that really cells have to make it out of the primary tumor, into the blood, out of the blood, into a distant organ. And indeed what you see is basically the same thing that we saw before. Um, Also these cells are very aggressive. You see very many and very large tumor nodules here in the control-treated mice, while in the mouse that has been treated with the same number of of these cancer cells and in addition treated with the MOLAT1 inhibitor, you see significantly fewer and significantly smaller tumor nodules. We also have micro CT scans of these mice. <coughs> this is how a normal mouse looks like. This is how the mouse, mouse lung looks like uh, when it has been treated with the tumor plus the control inhibitor. You see that basically the entire lung here is filled with tumor material, while the, same, that the mouse that has been treated with the same amount of tumor cells um, and with the mala one inhibitor has an almost normal looking lung volume. <coughs> so that, of course, was uh, showing that MALAT1 isn't not only a marker but an actual um, an active factor in lung cancer metastasis, but of course we are molecular biologists, so we were also wondering what might be the mechanism. And there have been two mo- uh, models out there: what MALAT1 might be doing—it might be active in gene regulation or in splicing. In our model, we can show that absolutely no impact on splicing, but that we do see that MALAT1 is an epigenetic regulator of gene expression, which induces a signature of genes out of which 23 have been known to be involved in either metastasis, cell migration, or cell invasion. So there's not a single target gene of MOLAT1, but it's uh, generally inducing epigenetically a set of genes that then lead to this more aggressive phenotype of Langadenoparsin So with this, I would like to move into the third part of my talk um, after this one example, moving into our ongoing um, work and the work that we are actually pursuing right now. So we started... Um, five, six, seven years ago already, a large scale profiling effort to find novel long non coding harness in three major tumor entities that we are interested in, namely lung, liver, and breast cancer. And we are comparing on the one hand side tumor versus normal tissue that we are profiling to find drivers uh, that are potentially involved in tumorigenesis, but we are also having a long follow up for most of the um, lung and the breast cancer patients so that we can actually look at markers that might be associated with survival and progression. And this is complemented uh, by experiments that we have been doing in cell line models where we look at uh, DNA damage, cell cycle, and DMT, so that we have data sets on those as well to complement our data. Today, I only want to s- uh, speak about lung cancer because it is the major cause of cancer-associated death worldwide. And we have a pretty good idea where lung cancer is coming from. It comes from smoking and other airborne pollutants. However, we do not really have a good idea and which molecular underlines uh, to, to cancer This relates in the end. So in lung cancer, we find 479 long non-coding RNAs um, to be differentially expressed between tumor and normal tissue, so, um, and we see approximately the same number for, lung and, uh, for liver and for, for breast cancer. So, of course, I want to show you one example. These genes from lung cancer we call look-airs for lung cancer intergenic RNAs. This is look-air number one. Uh, we looked at uh, 57 patients in two independent uh, cohorts, and in 56 out of 57 patients, we do find an upregulation of um, LOX1 compared to this surrounding normal tissue. Then <coughs> um, we did uh, Northern blots, and you can see that indeed, yes, we find on the right uh, right sides here. Um, after doing a race experiment, we do find <coughs> strong expression in several lung cancer cell lines, but other lung cancer cell lines are not expressed very strongly. And of course, there is also expression in. Uh, liver and uh, breast cancer cell lines that we, are, that we are showing here. And then we um, have in our lab a protocol uh, pretty much routine protocol that I call the, the homework, so the basic characterization of a novel transcript that we're looking at which includes like northern blood, race, all the good old, uh, good old things, um, but also in vitro translation experiments. There you see that um, neither look at 3 nor look at one so two of the long non coding eyes that we found give rise to any protein product we do biochemical fractionations of cells to find out that LOCA1 is cytoplasmic while LOCA3, for example, is nuclear. Uh, <coughs> and then we also do hybridization experiments uh, where you can see that also LOCA1, in this case, here is a, <clears throat> a cytoplasmically enriched long non coding RNA. To find out about the um, cellular functions that these may have, we looked into different databases and found genes associated with um, LOCA1. And the interesting part was... When we then looked for what are the are there any signatures associated with the genes that i um, one is associated with, we found that there's a very very strong correlation. Basically, in the <coughs> entire upper half of this of this table here um, with E2F binding sites in the human genome. So obviously, E2F, as you all know, is a transcription factor that's active during the cell cycle, um, and so that was of course one of the things we wanted to look into in greater detail. <coughs> so we first showed that look at one in, um, is actually regulated um, by, um, by directly regulated by E2F in different mm-hmm. kinds of experiments. These are data from a collaboration partner, mm-hmm. Doron Ginsberg in Israel, um, who had stable cell lines where you can induce um, E2F, E2F expression. And you can see that in all cases that we looked at, loca look one is induced by E2F. And of course, the next thing was to again generate loss of function. Look at one is much easier to target, so here we can just use, uh, since it's cytoplasm, we can use as um, siRNAs or as si Um And what you can already see when you just look into the cell culture dish, um, that the morphology is a little different. But the first thing that obviously um, becomes apparent is that you see that you have significantly fewer cells once you have treated your cell uh, once you have knocked down um, look at one, which makes sense for a gene that's overexpressed in cancer. Generally. We then also quantified this using the USA's, and as you can see here with two different <coughs> chemistries, basically antisense oligonucleotides and and as IRNAs, and in different five different cell lines, two of them shown here, you can always see a dramatic decrease of cell proliferation uh, once you knock down DOK1. Um, the underlying that could be due to apoptosis or cell cycle, and we can show that it's basically related to cell cycle progression. Um, so basically, if you look at um, A549 cells, uh, here what you see is that when you knock down um, look at one, you see that this, the S phase as well as um, or primarily the S phase decreases and the g uh, one phase of the cell cycle uh, increases. And the same thing is true for another lung cancer cell lines, H1299 cells, where basically you really lose the entire um, S phase here so that the program is not even able to pick it up anymore as, as a cell cycle profile. So we see a strong... Uh, increase in the G1 phase or the G0 phase of the cell cycle. And indeed, um, we also looked at senescence in these cells. Um, this is uh, doxorubicine, which is a drug that's, that's known to induce senescence um, in these cells, and this gives a relatively high rate of senescent cells. Um, in the control cells, we do not see any senescence, or we do not see much of the senescence. And if you knock down, look at one, you see that you can uh, induce senescence in about 50% of the cells, which is a relatively high value. So that already showed that look at one is one of the interesting, I think, most interesting hits that we have in the lab at the moment that seems to be in, regulated by E2F and then to induce senescence upon it. its knockdown. From the cellular level to the molecular level, of course, we are also interested in what, what's the molecular mechanism of these. And this is maybe the most challenging area of, of non-coding RNA biology at the moment. So the MUN method that we have been using. Um, is an in vitro approach. where We biotinylate our RNA in vivo when we do an in vitro uh, in vitro. We do an in vitro transcription, then incubate it with different um, proteins, um, wash and dilute uh, the proteins, and then identify proteins via mass spectrometry. And here's how such an experiment looks. looks like. So of course you always get in the control band also quite a number of bands. Unfortunately. Um, but in this case, for we'll look at three, which is a, yeah, another long, long coding iron that we have been working on that stems from our lung cancer screen, um, we find two very prominent bands and that are very consistently, mm-hmm. consistent. we have done that in five different cell lines. And this interaction is so strong that we basically use in student courses now to teach that method because this is the one thing that everyone finds <clears throat> doing it for the first time. time. As you might know, Q70 and Q86 are known to be a heterodimer. That's important to regulate DNA and uh, protein kinase activity, which is basically one of the first steps of non-homologous end-joining DNA repair. Um, we have also been able to map the binding site between the two. and Basically, what you can see here in one of these experiments is that whenever you put in exon 5 of this transcript, <coughs> you do get interaction, um, and exon 5 alone is also a, uh, sufficient and necessary for the interaction between our look at 3 with Q70, Q86. What was the big surprise is that exon 5 is not a unique sequence. Exon 5 is basically an ALU element. So ALU elements are repetitive elements that you find in the human genome in tens of thousands of copies. Um, so we were relatively surprised because the field has been thinking so, so long that either they are not doing anything specific or they are kind of building blocks where all of them do the same. But what we have shown, without going into too much detail, actually here, this is a highly repetitive ALU element that nevertheless mediates specifically the interaction with Q17 and Q86, while we have, to ten, have tested 10 other ALU elements which do not have the same property.
0: So maybe it's also time to rethink how we
1: think about all these repetitive elements in the human genome, which are, by the way, all discarded in all your RNA and DNA-seq experiments because the program cannot analyze it. So all this data you will never see when you use this is a direct interaction. We have also done gel shift or um, um, EMSA assays, uh, where you can see that for exon 5, you get a very um, nice induction and, and a shift of this band, which shows that you have a direct interaction between the protein and the RNA. And last but not least, we have tested DNA protein, uh, DNA-dependent protein kinase activity, which is basically the catalytic subunit of uh, Q7 and indeed, but you can see as if you treat DNA and uh, protein kinase with LOCA1 exon 5, LOCA3 exon 5, you can see that you see a decrease, while if you use any other kind of aloe element, you do not have any impact on DNA, DNA activity in the cells. So that shows that by identifying the interaction partners, we can actually find molecular mechanisms, what these long non-coding neurons are doing. And look at 3 as we are just uh, showing at the moment, uh, seems to be involved in non-homologous joining DNA repair. So this is another example of what long long coding ions can do. Now we have been moving into one step further because all the information that I've given to you so far was based on in vitro interaction of long coding RNA and to proteins. Now there have been a set of um, uh, protocols published which we now also established in our lab um, to pull down endogenous um, RNA protein complexes. So basically, what you do is you cross link uh, RNA and protein in, in vivo, then you homogenize and hybridize a probe, which is a biotinylated oligonucleotide or a set of biotinylated oligonucleotides, and the, uh, you capture this, pull it down, um, and then um, 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 reverse the cross link and identify the proteins by mass spectrometry. What has been prohibitive so far, at least for us and for many other labs, is the cost of of the biotinylated oligos, because basically what you have here is that most people use between 20 and 40 biotinylated oligonucleotides um, to pull this down, which is a cost of about, in Germany, about 1,200 euros, which is probably the same around here, which uh, doesn't allow you to do that in higher throughput. So what we came up with was um, a novel approach that we are using, which is uh, called, which we call RA pools, which we do uh, enzymatically and not chemically, which allows us to offer them for a much, much lower price in the company that I already mentioned in the very beginning. That they actually work, you can see here. Uh, so we have generated RA pools against the control gene, like Z, against the long non coding RNA called Xist, which plays a very important role in gene dosage compensation of the second female X chromosome as well as formula 1 that, I, that you can see here. And as you can see, we can enrich um, one as well as exist at least and specifically 100 fold uh, over the input. And for, for uh, this, this uh, we can also uh, enrich about 1,000 fold. So that basically means that you can pull down specifically your non coding RNA of interest from a wild mixture of any of your cells. The small caveat that I should mention is that um, usually we use about 200 million cells per experiment. So you you need to to do it. So with this, I would like to move into the last part, because what I've shown you so far was all basically done on individual long-non-coding RNAs, <coughs> so one by one. So basically, all, every, it's, it's uh, one grad student, one long-non-coding RNA, scheme, as I would like to call it. Um, but the problem is that we have found 479 long non-coding RNAs in, in lung cancer alone. So we were looking for methods how to <coughs> speed that up a little. And what we actually did was we used the expression profiles, um, knowing which long non-coding RNAs are regulated and which ones are expressed at all in cancer, to, uh, to generate our own siRNA library targeting the 638 most strongly upregulated long non-coding RNAs in cancer, using about 3,200 siRNAs. And we have them in an array format so that we can basically screen for each and every single um, SI along non coding RNA individually. And of course, we are screening for loss of function phenotypes in all kinds of, of cancer entities. So, the first and most simple thing that you can do is, of course, to just look for cell viability. And this is what we've done. <laughs> um, we find uh, here's such an experiment. Every dot is one siRNA, basically. The Z-score indicates um, how significantly the phenotype under investigation cell viability in this case is affected. And in our case here, a high Z-score indicates that you have a strong negative impact on cell viability. So what you can see here is that all the green dots, the negative controls, are around here, around cluster around zero, which means very nice. Um, Negative controls don't do anything. We have a couple of positive controls in here. This, for example, is PLK1, which has the strongest effect here on, on um, cell viability. And then you can see that we find literally hundreds of siRNAs targeting non-coding RNAs that reproducibly shut down cell viability. Um, and maybe you can even see here this, these four yellow dots, which all belong to the same gene, which is the gene that we call the lucidity, for viability enhancing the cancer transcript, where we have four different siRNAs all giving us the same phenotype of a significant reduction of cell viability. So that's the rise the easy endpoint essay that you can do. Um, we also made the mistake of entering a much bigger project, which took us about two years of our lives um, uh, to look into um, high throughput, high content microscopy, which basically means for all the 3,200 uh, 3, IRNAs, we took movies of cells um, every uh, and took pictures every thirty minutes. So in the end.
0: Um, you have about—if
1: you do it in triple, we did—you have about 10,000 movies of cells, um, which have been stained with H2B and Cherry, which stains for the for the uh, DNA in the nucleus. Basically, this is a histone plus GFP tubulin, to stain for the uh, for the cytoskeleton the spindle apparatus, basically. And initially, we planned that. That's why I'm regretting in retrospect how you've done that, because we had to buy to say, "Yeah, it's very easy. The computer does it all for you." Um, uh, The analysis in the end, we had a graduate student uh, sitting in front of a computer for three months and looking at 10,000 videos individually. But the good news is we found something. Um, We found, for example, learning on coding RNA that if you knock it down, basically all cells at a later stage uh, enter from phase arrest and um, do not know how to get out of it for a couple of hours. um, You see that um, there are individual examples that probably the computer wouldn't have picked up but that you can see by eye very easily where you have so-called polylob nuclei so the nuclear morphology is completely altered and obviously here for example you have a long encoding that seems to have something to do with cell migration because the cells grow normally they just grow in nests and cannot move away from each other and cannot um, um, migrate anymore obviously. so lots of interesting candidates lots of interesting phenotypes that we get from the screens but I have to make a confession because that actually... This particular picture was my personal first uh, first siRNA screen. So having heard a lot about off-target effects, I was wondering, um, I found many hits, as you can see here, literally hundreds of siRNAs that do give me a strong phenotype. Um, so my question was, are all of those now great hits? And I should hire 100 new graduate students to work on each of those hits? Or should I be worried about specificity of the whole thing? So I started getting into the literature a little more and found the following paper that I would like to share with you because I think every grad student should have heard about it. Unfortunately, it was published um, in a very small journal that I obviously had never heard about before, but it was published by NIH, so usually in, I think, um, an <coughs> institution that's known to do quite good science. And that what they did was to look at what's the specificity of a, screen, of a screening that we are getting. And usually you get. Uh, in a paper you always get this figure here. And this is exactly the figure that I showed you before, right? Um, you two replicates, meaning you compare what happens if I take the same iRNA twice. Do I get the same result? And obviously, that's exactly what happens. Yeah, You have an R of 0.94, so you have a very high positive correlation. If you do it twice, you will twice get the same result, which is good. However, what happens if you take two FI RNAs that are not identical, but have the same on targets so they should knock down the same gene. You would expect that if you have a specific interaction, you should expect that in the end you should get the same result, right? However, your R goes down to 0.07, so basically pretty much random. However, that what they also did is ask the question, okay, if we have 2 SIRNAs designed against different targets, different on-targets if you want so. But having the same seed region, so nucleotides 2 to 7 were identical, which are this, um, the seed region that usually mediates microRNA-like effects that then might give rise to off-targets, then you get, not a perfect, but a relatively good correlation, which means that much more of the phenotype that you're seeing is prone to, uh, due to off-targets rather than on-targets. So that was basically for me the signal that, yes, it's nice to have 200 hits, but in the end probably 20 of them are real. So um, I was a little bit frustrated, maybe, as you can understand, after having invested quite a lot of money and time into all these screens and then find out about this. Um, so I was looking for alternatives, and I actually found them in a paper um, that Gunther Meister um, has published, and uh, Gunther and I now run this company together, because their idea was to use SI pools, so pools of 30 siRNAs that you can pull together in order to dilute the off-target effects that each individual one brings, Without compromising the on target because all the 30s IRNAs have the same on target. So basically, what they do is to design 30s IRNAs, defined as IRNAs, that have all the same on target but have been handpicked so that basically none of them have the same off targets because they all have different seed regions. And then, of course, if you have all the same on target, you can dilute your siRNA 30 fold, um, your individual one, and so you can dilute out your Um, your off-target effects. And this is what they have done in this uh, published in 2014. Basically they picked an siRNA that was known to have relatively large off-target effect. And you can see here that an off-target is here even at one nanomolar concentration. And most of you are probably using siRNAs at like whatever, 30 nanomolar concentration. But even at one nanomolar concentration you see here that it goes down 60% the off-target. and you can see that it needs to be between 15 and 60 SIRNAs you would need in a pool and actually to be able to dilute this out, so to dilute the off-target effects in this case. And so this is basically what they are doing. They developed a method to um, make a pool of 30 sRNAs for the price of 2 to 3 normal SIRNAs um, because putting 30 sRNAs together is relatively easy but relatively expensive if you do it with, with Dharmacon or any other live technologies, uh technology. But in this case, what they have figured out was a method how to create a pool of 30 defined siRNAs uh, for a relatively competitive price. And this is how a, transcript- a transcription profile of a single siRNA looks. This is how a transcription fa- um, um, profile of an si pool against the same target gene looks. You can see that the on-target knockdown here is comparable between the two, but you can see that obviously the off-targets, the red dots, are significantly fewer. Overall, that works quite nicely. So this is if you knock down protein coding genes, uh, we have selected 80 protein coding genes here to, to test them with this eye pulse. And even at a one nanomolar concentration, which is probably much less than any of you would ever use in your experiments, uh, you can see that you get around um, 60 to 80 percent knockdown easily. And if you go to three nanomolar, basically all of them give you, almost all of them give you 90 percent knockdown efficiency. It also works for long non-coding RNAs, although again for long non-coding RNAs, life is always a little more difficult because, as I mentioned, some of them are nuclear. So, for example, pbt one is very difficult to target, while H19 is also nuclear. It's very easy to target, and that's of course the scientific question behind it: what actually makes the difference of one RNA that's accessible and the other one that's non-accessible to any kind of knockdown? Um, but of course, this is all very nice, um, and it was important now, and this is data basically of last week to show that actually the specificity also translates into better screening results. And this is exactly what we've done here. So we picked 36 protein coding genes. Some of you might, might know any of those. Um, and made either 3 siRNAs against them or 2si pools against them. And then asked the question, where do we see the better correlation of the phenotype? So it's basically, do you get more specific hits if you use si pools rather than siRNAs? And that's basically exactly what we see. So basically, if you ask for the correlation between, of the phenotype between 3 siRNAs targeting the same gene, you get an R-square of 0.19, while if you do two SI pools and ask for the correlation, you get an R-square of 0.71. So that was even much better than we had expected ourselves, um, but in the end that proves very nicely that, indeed, off-targets are a, sh- a huge problem and that um, in the end, um, pooling 30 SIRNAs is, is a good idea if you want to do some screens. Here you see basically the same, same figure, um, where if you have pairs of SIRNAs or SI pools, um, you can see that here you get more like a cloud, and here you get more like a line, which I think is obvious on this slide. And so we use this new technology that became available of the SI pools to actually validate our hits. And this is, for example, something that's obviously an off target because here we have two SiRNAs that give us a very nice knockdown and a very nice uh, phenotype. However, the si pool gives us exactly the same knockdown, but not the same phenotype. But luckily for velocity, we found that obviously this is specific because we have four SiRNAs uh, where we see very nice knockdown. The si pool gives us the same knockdown and also the same phenotype, so that velocity seems to be a true hit. Yeah, with this I would like to come to an end and summarize what I've shown to you. I started with a story about MALAD1, which is not only a marker but an active player and maybe therapeutic target for lung cancer metastasis and metastasis prevention in this case. I've told you how we are discovering novel lung non-coding RNAs mainly by profiling. Um, I showed you the microarray data. Of course, nowadays we're doing RNA-seq data. And last but not least, how we are going about function. I showed you cellular loss of functional models for LOCA1, which seems to be involved in senescence. I showed you the RNA affinity purification uh, technology that told us that LOCA3 seems to be involved with Q70, Q86, and DNA repair. Um, then I showed you the functionalized SI RNA screening, where we identified novel long-run coding RNAs linked to lung cancer. And I showed you uh, technologies of SI pools and um, RNA pools, RNA affinity pools, that you can use for this research. With this, I would like to acknowledge the people in my lab um, in Heidelberg at the moment, um, as well as numerous collaboration partners, especially clinical partners without whom we couldn't have done this research and of course also our, our funding sources. Um, I also want to mention that um, for the new lab in Freiburg we are offering two postdoctoral positions, so if there are any grad students in the room looking for a job and are interested in RNA bioinformatics, line cancer research or RNA biology, please let me know as soon as possible. And with this, I uh, am <coughs> told that I have to give this slide. In addition, I hope that some of you might know what it might mean. <laughs> um, and then I'm happy to end with my summary again, and I have to take your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, please. Uh, so what do you think your yield is? There's 10,000 or whatever you want to put on the body of non coding RNAs? And how many of those do you think, in the end, might be functional? Obviously, it takes a lot of technology to sort out one. You mean which, which fraction of the long non-coding eyes are functionally important? Um, since none of you is probably my grant reviewer, I would say between one and ten percent would be good. In my grants, of course, I write that all of them are important, but. Um, um, I think that's not, that's not very realistic. Of course, there's spurious expression. There are uh, bidirectional promoters, and probably the other side doesn't do anything. But once you start getting into transcripts that are conserved, transcripts that are highly expressed, transcripts that are spliced, that are interacting with specific proteins, I think it becomes relatively likely that many of them will do something. Um, but obviously, it's not going to be... So if it was more than 10%, I would be. Uh, okay. I wouldn't guess they would be very permeable to cell membranes and so on. Once you get something useful, how do you propose to use it to advantage any biological situation? Um, I'm sure you're making it, I don't get it, but that's a different question. Um, So one question, one answer that that would be possible is that you can find long non coding eyes also outside of the cell, if that was what you were referring at. So you you find long non coding eyes very unstably in the serum, but you also find it in vesicles in the serum, um, together with microRNAs as well. So there seem to be millions of vesicles, microvesicles, that are swimming around in our blood that seem to transport, or seem to be doing nothing else than transporting RNA from one organ to another organ. No one really knows why. People claim that this would be like a second hormone system in the body. Um, I'm not personally working on it, but the data that I've seen so far is so conflicting that I wouldn't put it now into my lecture, I would say. But it's definitely a hypothesis that's out there. So exosomes. I've seen papers about exosomes. Mm-hmm. Various mm-hmm. Yeah. Proteins, RNAs, everything. Micro. But even if you just take three exosome papers and look at the definition mm-hmm. of an exosome, you will find mm-hmm. very different sizes and very different things. So that's why I'm personally. Whoever comes through my door saying I want to work with you on exosomes, I send them their way and wish them good luck. So, <laughs> um, um, as long as it's not defined what an exosome actually is, I think it's, it's very premature to speculate what their function is. Yeah, I was wondering about the what's known about the regulatory regions of these uh, transcripts. Uh, do they have as defined promoters and concise promoters as concise as can be as do yeah. messenger RNAs? Uh, yes and no. So, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, long non coding has a very heterogeneous group of transcripts, and that also applies to how they are regulated. So, many of them are likely polymerase II transcripts and hence have normal polymerase II promoters with transcription factor binding size, GC boxes, tetra boxes, whatever you, you're looking for. Um, look at uh, one, as you see, is regulated by E2F, so very classical um, introduction or induction by a um, transcription factor. Um, However, many of them, of course, are also um, transcribed from cryptic promoters, many of them are transcribed from bidirectional promoters, Um, so I think there it's also very important to really individually look for the individual candidates. I think it's difficult to make any general statements from that point, hence... All of my students, I tell the first thing: if you have a new long non-coding RNA, look in UCSC what's going on at the locus. What kind of binding sites are there? Which kind of other uh, of, of other transcripts are around there? Too? And that usually also answers the question of which what's the promoter like.
0: <coughs> I was really intrigued by your early observation that uh, uh, many of these non-coding RNAs are found exclusively in primates. and I had, and I had thought that maybe this accumulation of evolutionary pressure going all the way back to helios and such, but if there's this, if they're only found in primates, what, what do you think is happening? What's the driving force that all of a sudden all of these have erupted so late in the evolutionary standard? So primates obviously
1: have a very high, comparatively relatively high, content of non-coding DNA in you genome. We're carrying a lot of base pairs that we actually wouldn't need compared to many lower Um, complexity, uh, lower-complexity organisms, the so-called complexity paradox. Um, They are basically in the field, I have not been personally working on this, um, in the field there are two ideas about this. One says it's junk, and that's why you don't find it conserved, which might have some. um, And the other um, kind of uh, group, of course, says that it has to do with brain development. Um, So there are relatively many of those long-nogonias are relatively specifically expressed in the brain, in individual cells in the brain. So it's not entirely unlikely that at least some of them, i would again, yeah, 1 to 10% is the range that I would always argue with. Um, but I'm sure that some of them are likely important for brain development and that obviously primates need more than mice. Hopefully. <laughs> um, is there further evidence
0: to the existence of maybe um, RNA domains or an RNA code uh, in regards to binding to specific proteins such as metal transfers or something like
1: that? Yes. Yes. Um, so this is, of course, much more difficult than for protein-coding genes, as so many things are for non um, So for protein-coding gene, if you have a new gene, um, you can basically go to a database and they tell you what the domain looks like, and then you know whether it's kinase or not. Um, this is in the making for RNAs, but if you think about it, for protein-coding genes that has taken like 20 years to establish. Um, I think if we can do it in 20, that would be very fast, because what you have to keep in mind is that basically... We're, we are We are facing the challenge that we have, do not have twenty letters like twenty amino acids. we only have four different bases yeah so to find a, a specific domain within four different bases that you have in a certain uh, region or that it can fold in a certain way uh, is relatively difficult so so far, um, there are very few um, serious papers saying that there is some kind of domain of anything there are of course folding structures like an element has a certain fold with two arms and so on but as soon as you're getting away from repetitive elements, it's even very difficult to predict reliably um, a fold, especially a fold in vivo. So of course, there's M-fold, and there are computer programs that do that for you. But if you then screen, let's say, for, through the first 50 predictions that this program will make, you will easily see that with, with basically the same delta G, there are 20 different um, um, things possible, structures possible. So unfortunately, there's not yet. Um, I know that some of my colleagues are working on this. Uh, we are ourselves starting to get into mRNA structure um, to, to look at, at that in, in higher throughput, but there's no such thing as certain domains that, that you could link to any function. On that note, if anyone is interested, I just come from a meeting in, in Boston where I think Dave Bartel, as always, had, has given a, a fantastic talk, and he, for example, found that the most stable structure that everyone sees in DNA and RNA are so called G quadruple. So, so just stacks of Gs onto each other. And everyone has ever, ever thought um, that, that this is really stable. Yeah? They are potassium dependent, but as long as you have potassium in the cell, which you have with 150 millimolar, usually they will form. Now they finally found, found a way to show that whether this occurs in, in the cell in real life. And although this is the most stable RNA structure I think that anyone has ever looked at, they don't find it in the cell. They find it in bacteria, bacteria, interestingly, do not have G-stacks in their genome, so obviously they avoid it that way, but in any kind of eukaryotic cell that they have looked into, although you can predict it, you can fold it in vitro, you can do structures in vitro everything, obviously, in human cells, there's a mechanism that specifically avoids that they find any, any, any of these g quadruplexes. Yeah. So that makes it a little more complicated in this case, and maybe in 10 years, and maybe with your help, we can figure it out. <laughs> any other
0: questions? It seems like many of the um, potential <clears throat> mechanisms of action involve um, sort of molecular interactions with these molecules. I'm just wondering in terms of the,
1: what the intracellular concentrations of these things are that allow them to be both regulated and regulating
0: things. Mm-hmm. Is it high or low?
1: Um, the majority of long-long coding is relatively lowly expressed. It's less expressed than most of the protein coding genes. Malat 1 in this regard is also the big exception. Malat 1, as I said, between 8 and 10,000 molecules per cell. Velocity, 5 molecules per cell. So that's the range in which we are arguing. Um, the, the one thing is that many of them seem to be, especially the nuclear ones, seem to be concentrated at one spot. So in many, for many longer coding, as you see, very specific patterns also in the subcellular distribution. Meaning, of course, you can have locally a very high concentration of it. And if you think about in cis effects, basically two to four copies, depending on whether before or after S phase, are completely sufficient to cover all the spots that they need to, that they need to cover. Because if you're in cis binding to one side in the genome, you only need two molecules and you have the genome covered. There are no more immediate questions. I would thank like to thank you for your attention and I guess that's it.